All right, here's a word or words. Reductio ad absurdum. It's a form of argument that attempts to establish a claim by showing that the opposite scenario would lead to absurdity or contradiction. It can be used often to disprove a statement by showing that it would inevitably lead to a ridiculous, absurd, or impractical conclusion. If that were true, then blank, and that's ridiculous, goes the argument. Now, I'm going to tell you this because it's not in order for me to sound philosophical or something. But it's to introduce us to a moment in William Faulkner's The Sound and the Fury that I think perfectly introduces this issue of time. We're going to talk about time today. Specifically, time as it's envisioned by this concept of Sabbath and how the reductio ad absurdum became the tact of Christ as he engaged the Pharisees and I think as he might engage us as well. But here's the quote if you haven't had a chance to read it. Picking up with the story, when the shadows of the sash appeared on the curtains, it was between seven and eight o'clock, and then I was in time again. This person who has woken from the morning. And hearing the watch, and it was grandfather's, and when father gave it to me, he said, I give you the mausoleum of all hope and desire. This watch he's talking about. But it's rather excruciatingly apt that you will use it to gain the reducto ad certum of all human experience, which can fit your individual needs no better than is it, it, it fitted his or his father's. See, I give it to you not that you may remember time, but that you might forget it now, and then for a moment, and not spend all your breath trying to conquer it. Because no battle is ever won, he said. They are not even fought. The field only reveals to man his own folly and despair. And victory is an illusion of philosophers and fools. Victory over time. A watch given by a grandfather that was meant to help us conquer time was given by a father who had become wise, perhaps even beyond his elderly years, to recognize it is the fool who thinks they can conquer time. It was propped up against this notion. Think about what just got said. It was grandfather's watch, and when father gave it to me, he said, I give you the mausoleum of all hope and desire. He goes on and talks about how excruciating it is. Mausoleum, a place, a building where the dead are entombed. It's a kind of dark place, really, a burial chamber. And here it's given this watch as a reminder that to try to conquer time is where hope and desire are laid to rest.
where it dies. It gives me chills <laughs> to think about what's being said here to a congregation like mine and like ours, me right in the middle of it. The hopelessness that we might not even know we live. The reductio ad absurdum. You know what I'm talking about, if you just think about it. Three texts come in a minute's time, updates scroll across your smartphone screen, your colleague, or worse still, your boss is calling you on the cell phone on a Sunday afternoon. And while you're talking to him or her, you hear the chime of a new email arriving, reductio ad nauseam. A device, think of it, meant to make us Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of time, has in fact itself become the Lord of our Sabbath. But make no mistake about it, the Sabbath, when time is tamed, when truly time is conquered for us and not as to oppress us, it's a time only that can be conquered by God, the Lord of Sabbath. And so the quote is given, remember, not as to help us conquer time, perhaps the father to the son, remembering how it conquered him eventually, but to remind him that if you think for a moment that in your own labor and work you can do it, it is a reductio ad absurdum. That is really what this passage is all about, lest you get caught in all the forms and details and you miss the element, the point. For you see, I want us especially to concentrate on this phrase, for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Many have interpreted this to mean something like this. You know, since Christ is God, he can do whatever he wants. He is over the law, as it were, such that even if the law given through Moses, perhaps doing certain things on the Sabbath, well, since Jesus is God, he is not bound to do such things. And so we read the passage with the assumption that Jesus and those under his direct authority violated the Sabbath, but that is not at all what this passage is going to teach us. We already know in Matthew, for instance, that he said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come not to abolish, but to fulfill. So somehow, Christ is here to fulfill the Sabbath. And it's interesting, isn't it, that our last sermon we left in chapter 11, verse 28, right before this passage, come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you Rest, rest, not just sleep rest, that deeper existential rest, which brings us to our passage. Let's pray. Father, speak into our hearts what we know can't be discovered in our hearts. 
That is the absurdity of our modern, postmodern era, that we look inside of ourselves as if to discover our identity even. How absurd to make an identity out of what we feel or understand about ourselves, and thus creating the impenetrable wall, the ceiling of heaven, wherein you can't speak to us. Forgive us, Lord, how we have created that glass ceiling. Open it, crack it, bust it open, speak into our lives today, we pray. Reform, recreate, restructure our whole identity that we might be not an image of ourselves, but an image of you. And so much of that has to do with time. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, I want to show you just how profound what Christ said is. And to do that, I want you to hear me for a little bit tell you a little of the history of Sabbath where it came from in the Old Testament, which then will explain a lot of this passage. You see, you go back, of course, to creation, Genesis 2. And very carefully, it's written, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all their multitude. And therefore, on the seventh day, the Lord finished the work that he had done, and he and it's translated rested. Now this word rested is, could be terribly misunderstood in the English, terribly, as if he's taking a nap, <laughs> as if he's going to sleep. It's better to interpret this as rested upon his throne. That's the way this word is used, and you'll see that in a minute in Ezekiel, the same word and how it's prophetically to be understood. It's this idea of being enthroned in the heavens, in control, sovereign, all things whatsoever that pertains to the work of creation is under God's sovereign rule done. There's nothing you can add to it. Now you starting to feel it? The burden go, if you heard the message, Nothing can be added to it. Humanity entered into the scene after it was all done. Only now to steward it. Only now to image God through the manner in which it's put into order and named with nomenclature and all of that stuff. But it's done. The world was created with a vision that's so beautiful it would make you cry. That we would enter a world without the weight of the world on our backs. Even our own life and our identity was given to us. Nothing to prove. The focus is on the finished work of God and his absolute sovereignty over life itself. The sovereign kingship of God is such beauty in this passage that you love it, you desire it, you want it because all of it is directed towards relieving us of the burden of creation and life, setting us free to live just to glorify him and enjoy the world he gave us. It's really that simple. 
Is that the way your life feels? I wonder why. I wonder why. I mean, the poetry of this passage in Genesis is magnificent. I mean, it begins with these three spheres, these kingdom spheres. It, it then correlates to, and that's day one through three, and it correlates to these three sovereign kings over each of these spheres. These are sectarian, if you will, kings, those kings over a sphere. And then, of course, there's a day. Oh, is there a day where the great procession of stewardship of kings comes to the great throne room of God and cast their cares and their crowns upon the throne of God on the seventh Sabbath day where God is enthroned, King of kings, Lord of all lordships and kingdoms. Oh, it's so boring what we've done with that passage in our reactionary theology. It makes me angry. How we so lose it in our culture wars and our political wars and all this stuff. And we're missing the beauty of what life is meant to be. Think about this. The first divine action that humanity is allowed to witness is of God enthroned on the heaven. That's the first thing we witnessed once we were created. It fits perfectly. It's interesting that Every time Sabbath is spoken of, practically, you get that same story. I won't hear repeated as detailed as I just did, even. It's the same story we read in Exodus, but here's a key thing. This is, of course, now after the fall. This is, of course, after Babel. This is, of course, after we have been laboring and burdening ourselves with our salvation and the salvation of the world now for millennia. Who knows? Many think more time transpired between the creation and the flood than is now, the creation and now. But we pick up in Exodus 20. And again, now what's happened? And then you have yet the reinstitution of the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, says Moses, 20 verse 8. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, but rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. Now, the context, though, is, of course, the flood and the salvation of God as through the waters of the flood. And if you go back and read that, which we're not going to do, I'm sorry, you'll see very carefully that the flood, the story of the flood is told in the exact same images as the story of creation. In fact, we see very clearly that the flood is envisioned as now recreating the creation. It's a recreation event. Again, I'm dying to tell you all that, but you can get it in other courses that we teach. But it's said this way, for instance, in Deuteronomy, when it's re reiterated, the Sabbath is reiterated in Deuteronomy 5, in a renewal context, and it says it again. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But this seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work. And remember, now look at what he's saying. He transitions exactly what I said. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commands that you keep the Sabbath day. Now, Sabbath day is a salvation remembrance as salvation, if you want to describe it, what is salvation? That big word we use all the time in the Christian church? Well, it's nothing but the word recreation. It's making creation over 
in a restored way. And so your first great recreation event is here described in the Exodus, of which then this Sabbath is reinstituted as not just a creation ordinance, but now a salvation recreation ordinance. Fast forward to the prophets. Ezekiel 20. Moreover, retrospectively now speaking, says God, moreover I gave them my Sabbath as a sign between me and them so that they might know that I am the Lord. Sanctify them. And hallowed my Sabbaths, that they may be signed between me and you, so that you may know that I am the Lord your God. There it is. I am the Lord of the Sabbath, saith the Lord. That's what the Sabbath was always meant to portray. Time. Might we just say time equals Life. I mean, what else is life but time and life? When set free from the burden of it is under the burden-carrying shoulders of God. That's the point. That we might flourish and live. That we might glorify God in the stewardship of life as in that stewardship which brings order into this world after his image that flourishes the world, and therefore that we might truly enjoy God. Do you enjoy God? Now, I could stop right here and ask you the question, what would it mean to keep the Sabbath holy today? Let's just, I'm going to assume that for a moment you're going to give me the benefit of the doubt and there is still yet a Sabbath day today that we are called and, and, and told to keep. A day that's going to focus, as we'll see, on the recreation event that is now focused on the finished work of Christ that was accomplished by his death and resurrection and therefore resurrection day becomes the new covenant Sabbath day the Lord's day, the day of the great Lord who finished all things necessary for our salvation. Dang, I just went all the way through this sermon. That's okay. What would it mean to practice the Sabbath? Still a typological ordinance meant to remind us that while we are in the Sabbath, we are in the Sabbath in the wilderness, if you will, waiting for the promised land and therefore there yet awaits a completion and culmination of the Sabbath for us. And it's to keep us on that journey that we might not go back to the journey of loading ourselves up with lordship ourselves. And isn't it be ironic that if the way you answered my question, how do you keep the Sabbath, that all of a sudden you start talking about all the burdens and works and things that you must do or not do in order to keep the Sabbath, that therefore you could be the Lord of the Sabbath yourself, basically? Wouldn't that be ironic? How ridiculously absurd and ironic that would be if you really understood Sabbath. That now we've made ourselves and our works righteousness and our merits and all this stuff the basis of what a Sabbath should look like. 
Not that they're not things that we're to do, but we'd have to see them differently than that. Well, that's what this passage is all about. The absolute absurdity of how these Pharisees through time had lost the whole point of the Sabbath. I mean, you see what happens here. Going to our passage, Christ did some things that really caused a problem with the established Jews of the day. So much so that on the day of the Sabbath, I mean, get this, get this, absurdity. Argument at absurdum. On the Sabbath day, what are they doing at the end of this passage? They're plotting to kill the Lord of the Sabbath. That's how absurd we can be in this place called humanity. What did he do? Verse 1 through 8, they were hungry. They went through the grain fields and they picked grain and ate it. That's not a violation of the Sabbath. Just go read Deuteronomy 23, 25. That's exactly what you can do for the poor who were allowed to to eat on the Sabbath, those who didn't have food, and they would therefore go to the fields, and there were spaces on the fields specifically allocated for those who did not have food, and they could come and they could eat it. Jesus did exactly what you can do. Nothing wrong here. And yet it was condemned by the traditions for doing so on the Sabbath. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Lawful according to who? And then we turn to 9 through 13. I mean, God forbid. I mean, God forbid. You got a man over here with a hand that's withered and who's sick and ill, and Jesus heals him. Oh, oh, the horror. You mean Sabbath, the very day which is to depict the lordship of Christ, the sovereignty of God, which sets humanity free from the burden and the load of our sin and all the curses of that sin, that Jesus would have the audacity to heal? That is to place Sabbath rest upon a poor brother who is hurting? You see, even as our confession acknowledges, written by, you could say, kind of Puritan people, the law has always acknowledged the Sabbath day as a day for works of necessity and mercy. But the Pharisees wanted nothing of it. It's very interesting. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And it says that they asked him that in order to accuse them. There was something about the, the mob here, you know, the populist mob, where we always see bad things happen in Scripture, that had an impression that they had focused on the trivial and the forms and forgotten the elements of what the Sabbath was all about. Now, how did Christ defend? Well, it's a very typical rabbinic, rabbinic form. You ask a counter question. There's that argument of absurdum. Let me ask a question that the answer is such as it's so absurd that you would say, oh God, of course not. And that's what he does. Picking a grain. He gives you two responses. He says, didn't you read that David 
when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were in him, but only to the priest. You see, there's a day of mercy even in the temple. And so the King David, who any Pharisee would know is the precedent for the Messiah, an image of the Messiah, the Psalms of the Messiah that we all read and see messianism all over the pages of the Psalms even to this day. Of course he can feed himself and those serving the kingdom of God by eating even the bread that was sacred in the priest. And then he goes and talks about the temple. He talks about the case of the priest whose greater service to the temple on the Sabbath was accepted, i.e., the idea that, hey, you, have you lost the point of the temple here? Numbers 28.9, on the Sabbath day, two male lambs a year old without blemish and two tenths of an ephah of choice flour for a grain offer mixed with oil and its drink, and they were made an offering, and they were eaten. You see, temple took priority. That's the point. Since priests worked the temple, they could eat from the temple. Something greater about temple, you see, is going on. And then he gives the quote from Hosea, which we read earlier. For I desire love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. These things were always meant to direct us to something. These practices, these, these, these laws, these rules were meant to direct us to something. And in these rules, therefore, properly interpreted and understood would be practiced in a way that, that serves the element that it's pointing to rather than becoming an element within itself. You see that? It's incredible. The Sabbath was never meant to be an ends, but a means to the ends. What was the end? It was to be a means to the ends of discovering the lordship of God over all of life. It was meant to be a reset day that would create now a reset pattern of every day and every day of life. A day which is meant not to help us be Lord over time, but a day that was meant to be like that watch that was given to the sun as a mausoleum, that could be a mausoleum of hope and desire if we put upon that watch our own lordship. It was meant to be a day that was to just break us of our lordship, that would stop us from our work, stop us from our self-sufficiency, and having to prove ourselves. And it was a festive day. It was a festive day. And so the conclusion, the Son of God, man, is Lord of the Sabbath. He quotes again Ezekiel, as I've already quoted, but if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of the Lord is the Lord of the Sabbath. It points to the primary part of what Christ came to do, to restore Sabbath rest. That big Sabbath rest that we've talked about, that covers all of life. 
And then in his defense of the healing of the weathered hand, he goes this. I mean, here, here's a, a statement of, of, of absurdum, right? Which one of you has a sheep? And they fall into this pit, or well perhaps, on the Sabbath. Will you really just let it die down there? Or would you send the, I don't know how they get them out, but they do something and they get them out. And everybody's kind of laughing over here, scoffing. Well, that's stupid. Of course we wouldn't just let a thing die down there that God had given us to provide for us, etc. And so you're saying to me, I can't do for those image bearers of God what you can do for a sheep? A member of your herd? And of course, this is where the Pharisees got really mad. Boy, they had been made to look foolish in their self-righteousness and works righteousness and self-lordship really over the Sabbath and they start trying to kill him. Again, the horrible, tragic irony. They're plotting, they're working, they're scheming, they're putting their minds to work to kill the Lord of the Sabbath. Well, what are the implications for today? This reductio ad absurdum. I mean, think about your life. Think about Faulkner's little story. Think about this right here. This is the watch that your grandfather gave your father that's now giving to you. Now, I know that's not true. Grandfather would have never envisioned anything close to this. But here it is, the watch, the Faulkner watch. What happens to it? Let's just be trivial for a minute. What happens to it on a day set apart to practice even the forms of the Sabbath? I mean, in the Old Testament, the Sabbath was sunset to sunset. That would have been of course, uh, Friday to Saturday night. Today, we understand the Sabbath to be sunset to sunset, Saturday night to Sunday night. It's not prescribed particularly that way. I don't know that I would hold you to that. In terms of we don't have a specific in Scripture to kind of reinstitutions. It's like kind of a lot of things that seems to carry over from the Old Testament ideas. Things like, for instance, well, I won't go into it. But here's the thing. Do you believe that you can possibly conquer this thing? I mean, isn't that what we bought it for, to help me conquer time? Didn't we get this because it's going to help me get in control of my life? (laughs) I mean, have you ever? Of course, that's a dumb question. You know what happens. A text begets a text. And before you've even blinked an eye, you've now got a string of texts. It's probably going... Long. Are we in control? Or are we controlled? And what's controlling us? The Pharisees sought to conquer the Sabbath. They had their devices, they had their traditions. Nothing changes. And so, what do we want to say here? Well, here's what we want to say from our text. Number one. To truly know and understand the Sabbath, 
was something that only Christ can bring to us. That's the point. Hebrews makes this point very forcefully in chapter 4. He talks about Joshua. And remember, Joshua was the last of, the, of those who would be before you'd enter into the promised land. And he says this, For if Joshua had given them rest, that is the one who led them to the physical promised land, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For over whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Note the word Sabbath here. It's an interesting word that's often spoken of regarding the specifically the ceremony, the ordinance of the Sabbath as a distinct word from another word that's for Sabbath that's often used to distinguish sort of the concept of, of rest. It's a different word here translated in your text from the word rest, in other words. This word Sabbath in the Greek. Many great theologian scholars, I'm thinking of Richard Gaffin, if anybody knows him. He's one of my favorite biblical theologians. Use him a lot. And, um, you know, he, he really makes a great argument, a long argument for this, and shows how it is that to understand this text in a redemptive historical context and understand this word, that, that truly what's going on here is this kind of double speak of there remains a rest, and therefore there remains a Sabbath day rest. But here's the thing you don't want to miss before I get to the second part. Whatever else you miss, you got to understand that we still, according to the Hebrews' offer, live in an era where we've not yet really and fully entered into the promised land. We're still waiting for it. And we are. We call it heaven. Even if we've already, like the Jews of the Exodus, been saved from the Sabbath beating rest lordship of Egypt. Egypt could be like my job. Egypt could be like anything. You know, that which we could conquer if we'll just make no more bricks. You know that Sabbath. It's, it's very familiar to you. More, more, more. Work harder, harder, harder. Try more, more, more. And I mean that existentially. Don't be thinking about my boss necessarily or my, even my company or whatever. But no, think about yourself a little bit. And what is it that it could be prestige. It could be Egypt is the prestige. More, more bricks of popularity. And one day you'll feel good about yourself. And off we go. More, more my house and getting it perfect. And off you go. More, more money. And off you go. It just never ends. That's the point. And yes, Israel was set free from that horrible tyrant, Egypt. Perhaps you could make the analogy here that when you became a Christian, Christ made you free. He set you free. You no longer were dead in, in, your, in your will, your affections. They became alive in Christ. He awakened you in Christ. You were enabled to say no to whatever ism is Egypt in your life, if there are not many. And now time, because you see time is going to serve that idol, time becomes reconstructed when you die and you say no to Egypt. No longer am I going to look on my Egypt phone and say, Egypt wants me to march. 
I'm set free from time if I'm set free only by repenting of trying to conquer time myself by working it. And so that gets you to the second. The ultimate, there still remains a Sabbath today, a Sabbath day rest. We see it in Acts. We see it throughout the pattern, how they worship, they gather together to worship, worship being the very ultimate focus of that day. And we're going to get that. But here's the second point I want to make. If there still remains a Sabbath rest, and yet it clearly, it can only be ultimately experienced by faith in Christ. The ultimate way to practice Sabbath is to believe on Jesus Christ as Lord over life, to live in submission to Him, and to rely on His finished work of creation, recreation, unto our salvation, a Sabbath-keeping. He talks about this in Hebrews 4. Therefore, while the promises of entering his rest is still open to you, talking to you, congregation, and me, and everybody out there on the streets, while the promise still is open, you still can get what God was promising humanity in Genesis 2. You can still get it. That is good news. But let us be careful that none of us you should seem to have failed to reach it. For indeed, the good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as God said, as in my anger I swore they shall not enter my rest. But since therefore it remains open for some to enter that rest, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter that house because of disobedience, again, God sets a certain day. Today, he says through David, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. My friends, my brothers, my sisters, if you're visiting here and you're new to Christianity, if you're listening to me on the Zoom, that is really good news. Some would like for the world to end and heaven to start, but you know, the Lord says, no, I, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. I want everybody, everybody to come and enter this festive rest. It's open, season, still. You can, no matter what you've done, no matter what your circumstances, no matter who you are, it is clear and unequivocal. The door is there and it's easy to open. Just knock, just ask, just want it, seek it. It's that easy. So believe on Jesus Christ. And if you don't know how to do that, text me. <laughs> yeah, I know. I just told you to use this thing. Text me. Text a pastor. So let's talk. We'll talk. It'll be fun. That's why you're listening right now. If you're not a believer, I'm going to say that's why you're listening. You want entrance. And you're not sure why you do maybe. You're not sure how to do it. You don't know anything about it. But I want in. I want to experience that world that you talked about in Genesis that was meant for us or the work of self-identity formation is over. I'm gifted with an identity so glorious you'll be tempted to worship each other when you see each other without sin in heaven. That's amazing. And on it goes. That's second. And then third, 
Yes, there is a Sabbath rest today. You could think of it like a typified by a weekly rest, this whole of life. The whole of life is then set in a framework within a pattern of one and seven. This is kind of a perfect number. I won't go into that, a perfect pattern. But it's the pattern of constantly going back and renewing our faith in Christ. It will happen every day, it'll happen every hour, it'll happen all the time, but there's a, there is a specific day, the Lord's Day, the day of the resurrection, where we see the foundation building of the church by the apostles, wherein on that day they came together and they worshiped. We believe worship is an essential element of Sabbath keeping. But here's the other thing about that day, and I don't want it to get lost. How you define the Sabbath again, I'm going to allow for some ambiguity, but there should be a time, a season, a day. There's been good theology talked about that on all sides of the aisle, if you will, in, in Orthodox history. Calvin had a view that said any day could be the Sabbath, and, and others had a view, no, it is a specific day. I mean, our tradition, and I agree with it, believes that it is Sunday, the first day of the week. It forces itself into our life in a most blessed and life-changing and relieving way. And taking the cue from the Old Testament, I think it's wise to consider it being sundown to sundown. And I'm not going to get into all the things, the details that I can't by good and necessary inference from Scripture say, but it should mean stopping something and somethings, particularly those somethings that are those areas where we're most aware of how and where we take upon ourselves the burden of time and life. It's probably going to be our work or something related to it. But here's the thing. I still think you have not done enough. I still think you have not done enough. If you take it from sundown to sundown, if you turn off that phone for 24 hours and never look at it, which would be radical and maybe the best thing you ever did, but I can't prescribe it from good and necessary inference in Scripture. See, isn't that good news, by the way, that we believe that kind of thing? I mean, I have a lot of good ideas about how you should practice the service, and I'm really tempted to just kind of confuse those ideas, my own ideas, with God's ideas. The very least, what I can say is with Paul, well, it's not God but me. I'm saying it'd be probably a good idea to turn this thing off for a while. And I'll say it the way Paul would have said it. But I'm not going to bind your conscience on it, nor will the church. I've given you the principle. But here's the third principle about Sabbath keeping that I think is really maybe one of the most important. It's meant to be a celebration, a festivity. Hebrews is going to go and talk about that very thing. He's going to talk about that day that we come together to worship. Then we come together, and it's a day where we are joining a festive assembly in heaven. It's a day where we not only remember that that full and consummate Sabbath is coming, that is the day when we are no longer under the oppressive burden of trying to work ourselves or this world into utopia, We're set free from that. We trust in the lordship of God. He's in control. He'll get us there. He'll do it. So be faithful to him to steward life. Don't 
that is the crucial junction in your life. I've just spoken to someone recently about this who's got job offers and they're great job offers and we're looking at those job offers and, and I'm saying, okay, how are you going to distinguish this? And if you're entering your work in a manner wherein your work represents to you the burden of building the world or your identity or whatever it is, you're in trouble. You believe your identity has already been constructed and built. It's a gift of creation. You believe your recreation identity has already been constructed and built. It's called your new creation, salvation in Jesus Christ identity. You are no longer male or female, Jew or Greek or whatever other ways that we can, all of those of which we can start to work. You can work the gender card, the work card, the vocation card, the, the economic, socioeconomic status card. You can work those cards to death. And he says, no, you're set free from that. Because you are already accepted and loved and complete in Christ. Christ completes all things, he says in Colossians. You are complete. Those are Paul's exact words. You are complete in Christ. Do you believe that? Oh, God, let me believe that. Help me with my unbelief is what I think as I ask you that question for myself. It should be a day of festiveness. Let me put it this way. If you're raising children, if there's one day where we are going to party, it's going to be on the Lord's Day. There's one day where we can just take a breath and enjoy the waters or enjoy the mountains or enjoy our walk or enjoy a game or enjoy something where we say, this is the day to to remember who we are, to, re to practice the Sabbath rest, being set free from the burdens of my work and the anxieties of it. Wouldn't it be amazing if our kids could see us for one day not being lorded over by our smartphones? But more importantly for you, wouldn't it be a great day if you could say, just take some time, whatever it is, I'm not going to be lorded by this phone because I believe that God is sufficient. You know what? Even if I don't do as good a job as I could have, God is sufficient. He'll provide. Even if it's not most perfectly done as it could have been. Oh, but I enjoyed the Lord today. Do you feel guilty for that? Do you have guilt for being, having fun? The Lord's Day is the day where that culminating festive activity took place, celebrating God's got it, man. He's got it. He's got it under control. And it's a day to come to this service like what's happening right now and reset that faith button and get it in perspective that you know what we have in our heads can't remember where I just taught this. It might have been here, it might have been somewhere else, maybe it was Compline. But isn't it fun that, you know, I yeah, it was Compline. You can go back and listen to it, kind of related to this same thing. And it's this idea that someone comes to you and says, well, you know, what's going to make you happier or something like that? And what we start doing is talking about the forms. 
well, if I could just do this, 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 I'm going to be happy. We can make a form medicine, and we work that Google Doc to death to find out how I can make myself healthy again. I've been there. It can be here. Trust in your doctor and work in the doctor. It can be trust in your work and work in the work. But whatever it is, it's something that we say we have so essentially correlated fulfillment, happiness, flourishing with X, say my bodily health, that we can't even imagine the possibility that I could be a happy, joyful person and still be sick. And that's when you know you've been set free. When the worst of your fears are not greater than the sovereign lordship of God who can in his way and in his time make you flourish. That is to say, who can finish the work. That was the focus of Genesis. And it was finished. It was finished. It was finished over and over. And God was seated sovereign that you might rest. Believe on Jesus Christ. Amen.